listening to the Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to be talking about all things food and drink. I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Ollie Lloyd. Hey, how's Here it going? he is, here he is. Pull the microphone nearer. Yeah, there we go. You should know what you're doing by now. And also Holly Shackleton of Speciality Food Magazine. Hello. Hi. Hello. We've got um, some booze in the... Uh, Brilliant. Yes. I know. <laughs> we've had, we've had a, f- a few weeks of non-alcoholic stuff, haven't we, and um, things, so... so we're going to nice. start with data, because otherwise... We're going to start... We mustn't do booze and then okay, data, okay. because so, then you, so, you start, you lose the plot, don't you? Yeah, I do a bit. Um, no, I'm not I, saying you. you I do, um, but no, but I do. Um, and we're joined by Rob Berry of Astley Brothers. Hi, Rob. Hi there. And I know you've brought your lovely stuff along with you, which we're going to taste later um before we do that um ollie i just wanted to get behind some data that you've been looking at recently in terms of plant-based um and actually what plant-based means have you got any clues and then we'll look at what people are doing well i think well on one level it means what consumers think it means in the sense that when we ask the question, it's like, are you trying to follow more of a plant-based diet? That's a question that we ask. Mm. I mean, in terms of what is a plant-based diet, there are obviously tight definitions and loose definitions because obviously, you know, the, 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 on the militant wing, you'd be avoiding things like honey. Um, but ultimately... You, you need know, to be careful with your words. Though. No, 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 no. No, when I say militant wing, <laughs> militant. I mean, as, in, as in like if you're being strict about it, okay. you know, you're, you're sort of saying, look, I'm sure. absolutely following this to the T. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the way some people follow a plant-based diet. But the movement, and we'll come on to this, is, is, is a broad one, which I think is a very loose definition of plant-based so, diet. So I've got some Wikipedia definitions here, which probably aren't true. But anyway, anyway okay. I'm going to answer them. It's a great platform. So veganism is a diet of vegetables, legumes, fruit, grains, nuts and seed, but no food from animal sources, and that would include honey, for example. And eggs. Yeah, any of that stuff. And uh, milk. Fruitarianism is a vegan diet consisting primarily of fruit. (laughs) You're judging. (laughs) No, you were making faces. No, I was not making faces. You're just doing it on the radio because you know that it'll just set me off. Um, Raw veganism is a vegan diet in which food is uncooked and sometimes dehydrated. Vegetarianism is a diet of vegetables, legumes, fruit, nuts, and that may include eggs and dairy, but yeah. definitely no meat or fish. Um, and that's what is the difference, I think, between, isn't it, veganism and vegetarianism, yeah. is, is there's some eggs and dairy in there. Are you just waving then? Oh, sorry, the fly just, <laughs> just flew. <laughs> um, and then there's ovo-lacto-vegetarianism, which includes dairy and eggs. I think that is vegetarianism anyway. Um, then there's semi-vegetarianism, which is mostly vegetarian diet with occasional inclusion of meat or poultry. I mean... <laughs> this is Wikipedia for you. Macrobiot, a macrobiotic diet, a semi-vegetarian diet that highlights whole grains, vegetable beans, sea vegetables, etc. No, uh, na- n- no processed foods. 
Why are you laughing? I don't know. I mean, look, look. <laughs> pescatarianism. I love pescatarianism. <laughs> Semi-vegetarian diet with eggs, dairy and seafood. I have to say I'm probably pretty much pescatarian, although I do love the odd bit of meat. Yeah, I mean... A as long as it's sourced. And... So you're what's known as an octopescatarian. <laughs> Octo-ovo. Yeah. <laughs> An equine, an equine, an equine. Equine. cow occasionally. The other thing is, uh, uh, the other thing I was reading, it says that humans are omnivorous, capable of consuming diverse plant and animal foods. So that's sort of physically capable, I'm guessing. Fossil evidence from wear patterns on teeth indicates um, that we were opportunistic omnivores, generally subsisting on a plant-based diet, but supplementing it with meat and fish when possible, which often wasn't very, you know, it wasn't easy. So I think, in a way, isn't that what people are going back to? Trying to be plant-based as much as possible and then supplementing it occasionally. There's There's a cost game going on here, which also is, you know, actually to go out and buy, and we often talk about the metaphorical chicken, um... You know, actually, a proper quality chicken costs a lot of money. Um, and I think the problem ultimately is, is that, you know, if you want to, you know, the, so the, the way that I think our grandparents might have eaten of, you know, uh, you know sort of post-war generation of then that when they could start to eat meat again in kind of quantities, that idea of the meat and two veg every day is just not sustainable. And I think people have kind of now got that message. Mm. And I think what's interesting is how that's going to play out in terms of what what diets are going to emerge, what cuisines are going to emerge, because certain cuisines are really good at that and certain cuisines are rubbish at it. Um, like Indian food, you know, if you're a vegetarian and you live in Indian India, great. not a problem. Yeah. If you're if you're if you live in you know I don't know, I think you know, some people say Italy actually is actually not great, uh, or China rubbish if you're a vegetarian. Mm. Um, or Preston. Well, no, but you know you joke. I mean, I I tried to cut down on meat eating in January, and. You do go to a lot of, you know, we talked about this with, with some of the guides, we, you know, people we brought on the show, where you, you go into restaurants and it's still, it still isn't a good enough choice from a vegetarian perspective. Mm. I only said that because I went to a restaurant in, in Preston and there was no choice at all. <laughs> no choice. Meat and, yeah, fish, which I was, I was a little bit shocked by, but maybe it just was that restaurant. Yeah, you, can't, you can't damn the whole of Preston. I mean, this is, this is unfair. Well, I don't know. My husband was from there, so <laughs> I feel like I can. <laughs> I, I'm withdrawing from this, from this conversation elegantly. Um, tell us about the research, though. So, what, so what's that so actually saying? Because so, I know what you do. Is you're, you're literally capturing things, you know, every six months. So you're getting a, a live picture. Yeah, so what's interesting is, so we started looking at the plant-based diet revolution really properly, seriously, in, in January 18. And we got the data back. We were like... Nah, that's got to be wrong. It's just too big. And the question that I think we got was that sort of 40% of committed foodies said they were trying to follow more of a plant-based diet. So we did it again in July, and the numbers were very similar, in fact, bigger. And then we did it again in January this year, and they're up to 56% of committed foodies are saying they're trying to follow more plant-based diet. Now, let's be clear, 88% of them are also eating beef in the last six months. And, you know, so, but the point is... But it's the shift in balance. It's the shift in balance. Yeah. And we've also seen that actually you look at recipe choice and the number one driver of recipe choice for foodies during the week is health. Now, it's not health for health's sake. It's health followed by enjoyable to cook and then, you know, taste great. So what you're saying then is people who who are quite knowledgeable about food and classify themselves as a foodie, which isn't necessarily, you know, the normal population. No. But, but so people 13% are interested of the food, UK. Yeah. They are choosing what to eat during the week at home based on health as their number one criteria i'm quite shocked about that but no but i think there's there's a logic to it which is i think you know during the week a 
Not Most people don't quick, have much time. Not, you know, it's no, but but, health. but 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 health and quick are quite closely. It's really interesting. If you look at the non-foodie, the first driver is, you know, it's literally quick, easy, cheap, cheap, yeah. right? Quick, easy, cheap. Just get me quick, easy, cheap. And actually, with foodies, it's like healthy. And I think that's about health in in the broadest sense, which is it makes you feel good. It, it's it's kind of it's sustaining and it's not too much work. And actually that means probably quite quickly cooked. It's not like heavy stews. It's not that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm. And I think what we're seeing is, and we've seen it in dairy and we've seen it in gluten, exactly the same trends, which is people are, uh, are looking to reduce their consumption of certain categories. They're not avoiding them, but they are reducing them. So why are people reducing gluten? So, I mean, the number is, is one that, drive... Is, is that now sort of a, a baddie? Is that now considered... Well, I Bad. think, and yet, and obviously, gluten's really important in, you know, in some food stuff. Mm. I mean, so the number one driver is, you know, a really flippant line, which is, "I fancied a change." So, if you look at all the people who agree with the statement, "I am trying to reduce gluten in my diet," the number one, when you say, "Well, why are you doing that?" Looking at the whole of the UK, not foodies, non-foodies, the number one driver is, "I fancied a change." You look at the other one. So, hold on a second. <laughs> so, people are saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm reducing gluten in my diet because I fancy a change," as the number one driver. That's well, doesn't make any sense. Well, two is to avoid weight, is weight loss, and three is part of a healthy diet. So change is it was within a sort of lifestyle kind of, I'm trying to eat more healthy. Now, remember, again, this is January, the research sure. has been done. People are therefore at a stage where they probably completely overindulged over the Christmas period. Um, you know, you've got the economic backdrop that we're dealing with at the moment. So people are kind of like, oh, I'm just trying to live a sort of better, more healthy life. I just think, you know, there's a bigger movement, and I think the the knock-on effect, going back to your sort of pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, fruitarian, all these kind of things, actually, these things are having knockdown effects in terms of people are then adopting parts of them. I mean, I'm, a bit, I'm obviously being flippant, and I did get the giggles a bit while we were doing that. Um, but but the point for me is that, that people are, are trying to, as you said, I don't want to just eat meat and two veg anymore. That's not what I'm... I'm trying to navigate my way around this. And I know there's different names for different things. But, you know, I do think that people are trying to... And again, I'm generalising. Put plant-based thing at the centre and then say, right, I, I know I need these things. Now, what can I put around that as opposed to putting meat at the centre mm. and what do I put around that? And there does seem to be a, a little bit of a shift there. But I think the real difficulty is it's really hard to cook good veg. Right. I mean, I, I, personally, I mean, look, I cook a fair amount, but, you know, someone says to me, we've got some vegetarians coming for dinner. I, I genuinely kind of go, right, well, I, I've got to actually genuinely think about this. Because it's it's not my natural style of, of cooking. It's more of a challenge, you know. Pescatarian, you, you, no problem. But, but you eat a lot of vegetarian food, don't you, I um, do. Holly? You're you're quite vegetarian orientated. Um, um, there's loads of great things. Are vegetables harder to cook? Though? I think to make them the centerpiece, I think they require more thought than a steak does. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I I grew up as a vegetarian. My parents were vegetarians, so I'm quite familiar with alternatives to meat. Mm. And I'm just very gradually seem to be going back into not vegetarianism, just reducing the meat. Mm. Um, and I don't see it as that much of a struggle, but it's not but You've got more me. experience of it, I suppose. Um, yeah. I came across this really interesting fact um, for, for our last issue, which was that plant-based products... Um, there's a ridiculous rise. It's something like 987%. I think that's from Mintel, so double check. Um, but, yeah, just a rise of 987% um, in plant-based food and drink products, which is amazing. 
in the past couple of years and it's just it's mad and I genuinely I didn't believe it when I when mm. I proofread that feature I did not believe that that could be the case but apparently so well I think there's a really interesting you know we, we talked to certainly some of our clients about it which is so how does a, how does a meat-based brand deal with this like it's really it's really it's a really interesting question because I don't think we're going somewhere where we're going to become a nation of vegetarians or vegans. No. We're I'd... so we're so far away from that it's ridiculous. I mean let's be clear like there are 250,000 strict vegans in this country. Um but, it's but really there is a massive, there is a real shift on on eating habits, and, and I'm sort of proud of it, actually. Yeah, uh, really. But I I do still eat meat products, but I think they it has to tick certain boxes for me. So it mm. has to be, you know, ideally traceable. It has to be good quality. It can't be pumped full of rubbish. And so I guess the meat brands, if they start catering and ticking those boxes for consumers, you see, I do that, that too. Be... Whenever when I have meat, I, I have a really strict criteria of the things I do. And I very, very expensive meat mm. because of it. But there again, I don't have it very often. So yeah. I, I really do consider it a treat. Yeah. Um, and I, I genuinely don't find cheap meat appealing. No, I don't. Either. I'd much rather go without mm. um, than have that. Rob, are you, are you, have you changed your diet over the years? Or are you a. Me, Meat not man. so much, but my brother, who is not here today, is a vegetarian, lifelong vegetarian. Um, much like Holly, he was raised by my vegetarian parents, uh, as was my sister, uh, who's now vegan and has been vegan for about three years. And she's one of the militant wings, so no honey, no leather, no other elements as well. No wine. Um, uh, only vegan wine. Mm. Um, and they came, well, they come over to us, my, my wife and I, for, for Christmas. So we've had a vegan Christmas for the last two years in a row. Um, but it's true, it's the idea, uh, there's two different things at play really. Cooking for yourself, I think it's quite easy to throw really great quality vegetarian elements together. But cooking for other people where you have a showcase and it's a dinner party. That's a really good point. That, that's that's a kind of a different thing. So, yeah. you know, my wife and I spend loads of time just planning, the, you know, the different elements of Christmas because you want to have this kind of extravagant feast with a centrepiece of some description. Um, but yeah, but how do you do it without any dairy whatsoever? You know, you can't use any kind of bacon or anything in, the, in any of the seasoning. There's no cream in any of the soup so you're looking for the alternatives all along the way but there's a really interesting point there and I think it's, it's one of the things one has to unthink as you move I think towards a more vegetarian diet is there isn't a centrepiece in the way that we historically see it so if you think about like a classic Indian tali there are 12 dishes on that plate Maybe something. that's where we're all going wrong. We feel there's something have to be at the centre. Yeah, maybe so if you, if you have... But, maybe but, but, we need to stop thinking that. It's maybe that that's where um, whole roasted cauliflower came from. Just something big that you need could slice to. into. Hmm. Maybe. That's it. That was a Noma thing, wasn't it, that came up about four or five years ago, that, that the roasted cauliflower. Um, but but that, that's it. Yeah, like you say, Athali, you've got 12 elements there, all hmm. kind of equally sharing the show. But, you know, we're, we're British, so we've had this kind of big hulking thing come out of the oven at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Labour's beef. The other stuff is just overcooked and scattered around it, really. Yeah, it's, hmm. it's the, that's that's the thing that matters. The rest of it's just bulk, really. But, but, it's, the, but it's interesting, you know, because i got two children and... and you know, my wife and I, you know, sort of laugh quietly as we watch how the two children attack the food. Because my son literally sees the meat and just goes Rah! and just eats it. And my daughter's like all around the edges, picking out all the vegetables and everything else. And it, it, I mean, it's so stereotypical, and it is hilarious to watch. Um, but actually, I think that when some ways, what one needs to move to is more of a kind of what I call small plate. You know, in the industry, small plate dining, mm -hmm. where. You know, you put five or six different things on the table and, and you middle. piece it together and then you have breads and you have other stuff. And, and that's, that's actually, uh, it feels quite Italian, that. 
You know, big long table, all the family are there, there's loads of stuff in the middle, everybody helps themselves. Yeah, that's it, very, very mm. casual, very laissez-faire. Um, my wife is from Sicily, so actually there isn't a lot of, well, I'd say there's a much lower proportion of meat actually being consumed, so the, the centrepieces around the table are often fruit and vegetables, because they're it the things. It is one now, of the greatest food places in the world. It is, def- I mean, to me it is. Oh, I, I love Italy, I love it. I just no, love it's Sicily it. for me in particular. Sicily, because there's more chili. And there's just more, it's more, it's more madness. In it. Yeah, Arabic spicing all the mm. way through. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different cuisine. So, so, Holly and Ollie, I want to read you this, okay? It says, it was a summer's evening in Palermo, Sicily. Great city. And Rob, sit next to me, had married into a Sicilian family just a few hours ago. At the reception, Rob was handed a precious heirloom by the in-laws, the treasured family recipe for their Amaro. He was sworn to lifelong secrecy and vowed only to pass the recipe on to his first-born children. Obviously, he promptly broke that vow by telling Jim five minutes later. Is that true? Yeah, it was, it was probably <laughs> ten minutes, to be honest. I'd, I'd had a couple of drinks and I couldn't find him. So Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's all true. Tell us what Amaro is. So Amaro is the Italian word for bitter. Um, uh, so it's, it's a category of liqueurs, bitter liqueurs. Um, so Campari, Aperol, um, they're all types of Amaro, essentially. Um, and it's, in Italy, it's a real expression of terroir. So um, families and, and um, villages have their own recipes. And it's, it's about taking the, the, kind of the, the, the must or the spirit left over from the winemaking, grabbing roots and botanicals and flowers and citrus and whatever you have in your surrounding areas, macerating them together and sweetening them up and essentially just sort of having this kind of distilled essence of the of the, the region that you're from. Plant-based essence of the Entire, region. Entirely vegan, yes. <gasps> Great. Have you got some with you? We have, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Um, we've got some ice here. Cool. Should, should we have a little... Let's do, give it a go. Do you just drink it straight from the bottle, usually? Uh, only only past midnight. Uh, normally we're... Okay, well, we're, we're past midnight here. Yeah. Somewhere in the We've world. We've got large straws. So, so generally, because Sue and I had a whole conversation the other day, and I'm about to probably do something like a massive disservice to you here, about the great Negroni. Yeah, so he, he emailed me. He, like, so just to put you, Ollie never answers his emails because he's very important and he's too busy, right? Then he emails me, and I go, oh, my God, I've got an email from Ollie Lloyd. Can you tell me how to make a Negroni? I've got people running, coming around no, this I, no, weekend. No, it wasn't, it wasn't that. It was... <laughs> It What's was, your it recipe? Was, it was, it was Sue. You said you, I sent you it back, and he's like, he answers straight away. Okay, great. Because I do. He never answers my emails normally. Yeah. No, actually, the title email was serious question. Yeah, and serious question. Like, I thought, oh my god, he's going to say he can't do recordings for next month or something. <laughs> he's going into hospital, and it's no, like, how do you make a Negroni? No, how do you make a Negroni? <laughs> I know. It's, but it's you, and and it was very much about. But but one of the things because the reason we had this conversation was because we had on the show some people who brought in some you know. Um, I got a little bit drunk during that recording. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it was in cocktails, but it, yeah, we're talking about Negroni, weren't we? Yeah, but but you know, so so do you do you drink this straight or do you drink this as part of a cocktail? Uh, a little bit of both. So we so a classic Amaro is um, uh, you, oh. so anywhere between around. Oh. <laughs> anywhere See, between I around. love Italian bitters. <laughs> I just love it. Sorry, I just... No, it's all right, don't worry. But around sort of anywhere between 15% and maybe 45% ABV. And when we were thinking how we wanted to make a, our British version of this Amaro, we wanted to make something which was light enough that could be consumed with a single ice cube at, you know, at room temperature, mm. not being too sweet, sticky, viscous, heavy. We were trying to sort of create something a bit more for the modern British palate, really, and came up with this kind of hybrid fusion Amaro. Um, so, yeah, it, can be, it works in cocktails. So this is... 
this is what we we call our dispenser Amaro, um, and it's twenty six percent ABV, but it's similar in profile to a Campari. It's drier for me than a Campari, though, so it's got that bitterness, but it's dry bitter. Does that make sense? It does. There's a lot less sugar. It's probably mm. half of the, of the ratio of sugar in this. It allows a lot more of the complexity to come through, um, but it works really it's very well. Very earthy. It, it, yeah. So, so there's lots of lots of kind of elements in there um so we don't use any kind of tinctures or essences we just get a load of fruit citrus four different types of citrus soft herbs um and sort of botanicals like devil's claw two different types of british hops um angelica rhubarb root uh, yarrow chickweed hyssop um yeah and, and macerate it all you together. told that family you weren't going to give anything away this is a different recipe uh, yeah. the other one's a secret uh-huh. The other one had nine botanicals in, really a classic Sicilian, so sure. a real... Experiment. And in, on your bottle here it says um, to serve with uh, a bit of grapefruit zest. I can just imagine that. Mm. That yeah. would be really good. Right, come on then, I'm, I'm trying to educa- educate you on the Negroni no. path. What do you think of that? Would you it's make a Negroni dry, with that? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So, uh, you know, we have a vermouth here, which will par, uh, pair particularly well, so we pa- pair the two together. Yeah, let's have half an hour. Dash of gin, <laughs> getting warmed up now. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, Amaro and uh, and that. Um, as you know, I'm I'm a bit of a fan of vermouth. I think it's, I think it's been done a disservice, and I think probably. Yeah, I know this sounds weird, but I think probably the sort of Cinzano Martini brands, trying to make it accessible to the masses, has actually ruined it. And I think some of the advertising that they did at the time, was quite sort of girly and flippant. And I really think it's damaged the brand, the, the drink itself, considerably. And yet, when you take gin, has all these botanicals, this is just botanicals with wine. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of our take on it. Um, I mean, Cinzano is a, is a massively successful brand, and I think you're probably right that the British view of vermouth has, has been dented somewhat, mm. but it's coming back in spades. Good. The, the rise of the sort of the interest in gin and its botanicals and how it's made and having local drinks that have transparency about their, their product and ingredients, for us, really feeds into, into vermouth because, you know, you can speak to 50% of the gin drinkers on High Street, and they'll all tell you what kind of botanicals might they, you might find in Bombay Sapphire, yeah. for example. Everyone wants to be educated about gin, and you know it's it's a very similar base of botanicals that goes into the vermouth. So I've just had um, Amaro and vermouth mixed. Good. That call. needs something else in it. Uh, well, it needs, you know. it needs gin. Yeah, That's what it needs, and, it's and a little bit of fruit there, perhaps some orange or something. Great fruit, maybe. Um, just tasted the vermouth on its own. Dice. Good, thank you very much. I like that. Not too sweet at all. No, again, drier than uh, than a lot of sweet vermouths in the marketplace. Um, yeah, much drier. And we use a, a British Pinot Noir as the base for that, so which that's which is quite unusual. A classic sweet vermouth is a is a kind of a neutral wine, like a, a Garganego or a Trebbiano, so something that has very little flavour or tannin. So it's a British wine, British with wine. British botanicals, exactly. This is like it's really unusual. It's great. This isn't is it? like the isn't Brexit dream, isn't it? So essentially, what we're doing is <laughs> we're taking worry. we're taking a, a concept from a European product, and then we're using UK only produced stuff in order to make it. That's terrible. And you, you, that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? You're trying to bring that out again. Elements of it, British. yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. The you know where we are in Forest Hill, there's not a great amount of citrus that, that kind that's of. That's weird. Know. It's difficult. We go out foraging for <laughs> grapefruits every morning. We just haven't managed to find a crop yet. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, you, should, you should go to the local, the local greengrocer. They, they often have everything. We we yeah. often do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you've also got with you fernet. Yeah. Now I've seen. I, I consider that to be. a I've only seen it as a bitters. 
which, which I thought you added to things. I didn't realise it was a drink on its own, or in its own right. Yeah, um, so popularised by the Branker brothers. Um, so yeah. Fernet Branker is a, is a very well-known version of Fernet. That, that's my only knowledge of it, really. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a subcategory of Amaro. It's the sort of the grumpy older brother, as we describe it. Should be right up your street, Ollie. <laughs> Quick, pass it. I'm the younger brother. Oh, yeah, I forgot. So that's got nuts in, so just in case anyone has any allergies at all. Just to be so what, so explain what, what the, is the what basis nuts? of fernet. Hazelnuts, roasted hazelnuts. So the fernets um, classically sit around 40 to 45%. You're not driving today, so. No. <laughs> oh, my God, that's 40%. Yeah, exactly. Um, so very bitter, a lot less sugar than, than the Amaro, um, much more intense, much more kind of direct. Oh, wow, blimey. Um, but lots of mint in there. There should be a nice kind of long, bitter kick. Barky, um, licorice. Yeah, exactly. Loads of licorice going through that. Um, Angelica is a big kind of um, Angelica's really flavor. strong. Yeah, you've got myrrh going through that, cinchona bark as well. That tastes like the best, I don't know, some sort of medicine, wow. but like in a nice way. It's very medicinal, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I like it. I'm it's sorry. like my older brother. <laughs> I'm not sure I like it. He's lovely. Yeah, I was... Hang on, so... so Holly's in... right turning her nose up. Oh, not, no, I'm still, oh, you're not on still the, finishing the album. Holly's three drinks back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're like the alcoholics <laughs> in the corner. Holly's trying to keep the programme together. Yeah. Um, so before yes, you married your Sicilian wife, what were you doing? Oh. Working in bars, hotels, restaurants. So we've always we've always made things behind the bar, um, you know, and, we, and we, we ended up kind of inheriting this recipe and making the sort of a very classic Sicilian Amaro for, you know, friends, family, Christmas, bar mitzvahs, whatever it might be. And then in 2013, 2014, we thought we want to make something and we want to make something which is British and has a sense of provenance, but let's not pretend that we're Sicilian. Let's not pretend that we're going to make an Italian, um, you know, an Italian product. Let's try and find things around us and, and look into London's history of tonics and bitters and liqueurs and bring elements of that into, um, into the product that we're, um, that we're making. Um, so we came up with this kind of hybrid, um, hybrid Amaro. Just watching... <laughs> Holly's just Holly's just about to take some fernet. Go on. Do you, do you all have to watch me? Is yeah. Fernet, so yeah. Tell me the history of fernet. I, I don't know. Fernet. No, I don't know. I didn't know it really. I, I, I think, think. Is it a thing? It is. It is a thing. Yeah. It's, know it's I a. Like <laughs> do you? No, I do. It's. Uh, I haven't tasted anything like, like it, it before. Oh, I mean, it's very strong, isn't it? It's very strong. Really uh, nice. Not just in not just in in alcoholic content. I mean, it's an incredibly strong flavour. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a very marmite drink. I was saying to to one of your your producer colleagues earlier. People love it or hate it, and um, it's the national drink in Argentina. If you didn't know, Arge, um, Fernet and Coke is is the most popular drink in Argentina. See, I like how it's kind of it's quite woody, and then very. yeah, and then you and then you have kind of a bitter aftertaste, yeah, the but then that fades to almost like a maltiness. Yeah, mm. very good. London which porter, which is really amazing. There's, bit, there's a lot of beer in there. It's about forty five percent of that is, is London porter. Mm. You should yeah. like it too. Have another sip. So sorry, we were asking about Fernet, uh, the history. The history of it, I, I, I don't know much about it. I mean, the mm. first, the first one on the marketplace was around the early eighteen hundreds. Um, I think it was the Branker brothers who came up with it. Where the recipe stemmed from, I'm afraid, I, I don't know. There are a number of producers who are still making it or have been making it since the eighteen hundreds, and it's very slowly making a resurgence. Um, incredibly popular in the U.S., San Francisco, Seattle. It's, it's, you know, they, they love it over there, but lesser, certainly lesser known over here. Right? niche it's such i mean you know whiskey is a distinctive you know like big whiskey big peaty whiskey Mm. but this is like 
This is a completely different level yeah, this of is like. Beyond. I mean, this That's is beyond. This is, really like a punch. Like, this is why I really like Negronis and and some of the beautiful vermouths that you get. I mean, there's there's a whole range of them that which which are incredible because they're such massively big flavors. I know, but, so, but I'm cool with the big of the vermouth, but mm. I, I'm in, I'm I mean, I love Marmite, but but this is this would take a lot the to furnace. get used to. Yeah, the furnace really. I mean, I know, look, I mean, it's beautiful. You know, it's beautifully constructed. You, you can, can tell. tell yeah, you can tell it's thing. a quality product. But what? But but it, I find it really it's, interesting. It's that, a bit confusing. There are lots of elements going on. There are lots of different kind of flavors. A really long aftertaste. Yeah, and then like I say, you have the maltiness and the bitterness and the coffee and the chocolate and the Wood. a bit of citrusiness almost. Like mm. there's there's just so much going on that I'm not familiar with that <laughs> with the taste at all. But I'm intrigued by it. it. Takes a bit of getting used to. I think they when they first released Campari, one of the big campaigns around Campari was. The, you know, the catchphrase was, you won't like it until the third time you've tried it. It's a genius campaign. <laughs> it's a bit like that. Instantly. Well, it might be like, you won't like it until you've had a bottle of it <laughs> over, yeah. a, over a year. How you're you you're still it? processing this, aren't you? I, I am. See. You're still processing it. Because, because it's so other. Yeah. It's so not related to anything else that I've drunk. Hmm. I mean, it's not like, it's not, oh, it's like a, it's just like, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. How would you, what kind of things would you pair it for with in a cocktail? We like to use it almost kind of like a seasoning, like you might use, you know, Worcester sauce almost. So mm, things like okay. a espresso martini, put kind of half a shot in there and you've got to take Ooh, something. Oh, live from, an espresso martini. Yeah, and you, yeah. you had a sort of a, a take sort of away serious. Take sweet edge of espresso martini. Exactly, yeah. You kind of take this very grown, you end up getting this very grown up kind of developed bitter flavour. White Russians, the same thing. Those sorts of pairings and marriages work really well. Because it, it's got a. Um, it's got a smoking. I mean, I'm an ex-smoker, you know, and it's but it's got it's got a smokiness to it. So you can imagine how it can it can lay down those kind of those foundations of, of like really deep flavor. But if you're very yeah, very so skilled, you'd need at, to know. at mixing oh, yeah, I, I mean, drinks I, I can, and cocktails. You could have some great fun with yeah, that, I mean, I, couldn't you? I, I, I'd probably kill people, but, <laughs> but, but you could have some great fun if you really. If you knew what you were doing yeah. with the flavor profile, you would. You, it adds a layer of kind of. Yeah, it'd be amazing with like a um, old fashioned. Just to add a kind of another base note to the. That's Ollie's favourite. Yeah, exactly. That's you're not sure, are you? Oh no, no, no! I'm re- <laughs> if somebody knew what they were doing, I'm really yeah, interested you'd have a go in at it. it. And I think it's like there was something I had a cocktail the other day that was which had like you know Havana smoke in it. It was like kind of trying to do that sort of deep, earthy sort of stuff. And I kind of get that, and I get it as a flavour. I, mean, I couldn't drink it alone, but I could imagine it as a building block. Mm. Yeah, I could too. So, so you, you've uh, you've started Astley Brothers, um, and uh, since two thousand and fourteen, I think. Yeah, that's it. We... Um, you've got a very distinctive look on the bottles. Yes. Sort of serious, cool, dark, <laughs> that's us, yeah. mysterious, slightly. I think, although very obviously trying to be uh, quite British, which is which is right because you're, you're you're trying to that's what you're trying to do. Um, so, so where, so where are you now with the company, and what, what, what stage are you at? So, we released the uh, the Amaro two years ago, pretty pretty much, and then the Vermouth a year ago. Uh, the Fernet, probably only a couple of weeks ago now, is just kind of finding its way into the market. Um, we're working on a Bianco Vermouth. We're doing some some work on some house vermouth. So we're doing vermouths and kegs in a few places in London, um, and then you know just the, the the general nuts and bolts, really. You know, just trying to get the get the message out there about British bitter botanicals, which is uh, yeah, that was uh, just a really nice, interesting 
conversation to have with people. I'd really like people who who are uh, into their gin uh, to have a go at this because it's, it's you know you can you can drink twice as many. <laughs> in exactly, a way, yeah, but no, but you can, can't you? Because because obviously gin's forty percent, and this is sort of twenty. Well, exactly. Um, yeah. But but and and for me, it's a much more leisurely drink, and it's 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 not as alcoholic, and and that, I quite like that about it. Yeah, I mean, you get you might you get quite a lot of bang for your buck mm. because of the bitterness, because of the sort of the complexity of, of the vermouth flavours. You can have a few sips, and it really feels like a kind of a proper mouthful. And mm. you know, the vermouth is sixteen percent ABV, so it's it's a lot less almost a third less than, mm, than gin. gin. Yeah. yeah. Your thoughts on vermouth and what you've just tasted? I'm, well, I'm, you, you I'm a little bit nonplussed. No, no, I'm really excited by vermouth at the moment. I really want to go on a bit Good. of a vermouth journey, uh, which is why I'd emailed you those weeks ago and said, look, give me your vermouth. <laughs> oh my God, Ollie's ill. And, um, He's emailed me. And I then went to Highbury Vintners and they gave me something completely different. Because of course they didn't have the one you wanted. Yeah. Um, and I decided better to buy a local shop rather than anywhere else. Hmm. I, I, I think no, I think what's really exciting is you know we've said this a number of times and, and we've talked about kind of I suppose the opportunity in the UK is there are enough gins there are if and you're I, thinking of mortgaging your house to start a gin brand don't is my advice go for vermouth or rum is well, interesting at the moment I mean look I think th- it's not to say that it's going to be an easy journey but I certainly think there are some in- it's interesting that we're we're going back in some ways also to old recipes and I think that's really exciting that mm. you know there's there is a history and at times. In the UK, it does feel like we've lost our culinary history. And actually, to, to be going back to old recipes and old stories, I think it's really exciting. Mm, definitely. Well, yeah, agreed. very good luck with it, Rob. Um, where do people find out about it? Um, presumably, you're you're angling towards the trade quite a bit, because that's your background. But can people buy it as a consumer? Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, through our websites, uh, Whiskey Exchange Online, Master of Malt, um, and then on the high street, we've got Fortnum & Mason's carry it, Harvey Nichols carries it, and lots of independent kind of high-end uh, wine stores. If you can find good beer and good wine, then often you can find our Vermouth Namara. So that's Astley Brothers. Um, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Rob. Um, I'm sorry that uh, your brother, uh, Jim, isn't here. But, yeah, you know, yeah, me too. Thank you so much, uh, Jim, for providing us with this as well. Um, any last thoughts in terms of the independent retail stores? Maybe they should be thinking beyond having 20 different gins and, and looking at some other artisan-type I agree. Products as well. Yeah, I agree completely. And if... The, um, you know, if these products have that heritage and the story and the quality behind them, then, you know, there's no reason why they uh, they shouldn't be hugely popular at Independence as well. I agree. Would you, um, are you angling more towards that sort of cocktail making than your whiskey? Old fashioned that you like? Well, I'm, I'm certainly... You're just experimenting more. Well, no, I, I, you know, I was very struck by the fact that when I got my act together and finally made a Negroni, um, it was really, it was so ridiculously simple. You know, three ingredients, bit of ice. And suddenly you sort of... And I do think it has a wow factor. And I think on the basis that, you know, one of the trends I suspect we're going to see more and more of this year is people eating at home more and, you know, entertaining more and, and, you know, experimenting in this kind of area. Actually, giving a cocktail a whirl is just such a good thing to do. It's great fun. It's 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 really... When people come round and it's before you eat, it's just such a talking point. But people are saying, oh, I do like I don't like it. And it sets and the night off in a, it in a does, direction. It does, because it's, it's nice, I think. Um, interesting as well, uh, the last, I would say the last year people have come around for dinner. Uh, they've not bought wine now so much, I'm finding. People are saying, oh, I've just, I've just come across this new gin or this new whatever. Just bought some I've seed bought, lip. Has anyone bought, bought seed lip? No, yet? funny enough, I've never bought that around my house. Um, Twice. But, the, you know, saying I bought this for later for you to try and, and whatever. And so I think that this thing about all only serving wine is... is 
I think, I think it's, it's broader it, than that. It is it? so boring, is it not, to turn up with a bottle of wine, be like, hey, here's a bottle of wine. Actually, it's much more fun to say, yeah. here's a cool bottle of... Something. Yeah. Very good. So you've been listening to the Food Talk Show. We're on lots of different radio stations across the UK and further afield. And you can also download our weekly podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify and the podcast app on your phone. And uh, I'd like to thank my fellow presenters, Ollie Lloyd, of Great British Chefs, looking a little bit puzzled, but enjoying himself. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. And Holly Shackleton, who likes Fernet, has now discovered. Well, is not sure, but I think she does. Yeah, definitely. I'm keen to explore. Keen to explore. Um, And Holly is editor of Speciality Food magazine. If you want to recommend any future guests, just like Robert Berry and the wonderful Astley Brothers brand... Thank you, Rob. Um, Someone doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, please get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. Or if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk. I'm just about to finish off the rest of my vermouth. So have a good week. Bye.